All right. So when we look at Christ the King, in fact, the various offices under which Jesus works, the various offices or uh, departments under which God works is generally three. The first one is under the office of the prophet. You all heard of this probably. The prophet, Christ as the priest, and Christ as the king. So even before we get into Christ as the king, we will just look at the other two and then get into the third part of uh, the talk. Now, Christ as the prophet was mentioned by Jesus himself in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 4. And Jesus, uh, this is when Jesus goes to Nazareth and nobody accepts him, nobody listens to him. He, Jesus heals only a few people and he moves on. And this is what Jesus says. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives. So Jesus refers to himself as being a prophet and that he's not being well accepted in his own village. In Matthew chapter 17, again, uh, uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Moses and Elijah who descend onto that mountain and Jesus is there and there is a loud voice heard which says from heaven and this says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Again, listening to someone is the function of a prophet. The prophet speaking to us and we listening to him. So that is a prophetic function of uh, the office of Jesus. Now, Whenever you look through the, the Old Testament, whenever the people became resistant, whenever the people forgot God or did not want God, and nobody was seeking God, then God would find one person who is listening to him, and he will use that person to convey God's message to the people. Like, for example, in the times of Noah, no one else was there, righteous enough, or every, the, all the thoughts in the whole world were that of sin. Everyone was far away from God. But God found Noah to be just. And he used Noah as the prophet to speak his word. So in a way, the function of a prophet is to bring messages, to work from above to below, to bring message from God to people. So that's the uh, prophetic function if you want to summarize it in a, in a very effective way. Now let's look at the second office that Jesus works in. We cannot compartmentalize God for sure, but this is just for our understanding. The second is Christ as the priest. Now salvation is only possible in Jesus Christ. We all know that we are all believers. And you know, uh, there are two things that we have to satisfy to be able to get salvation. One is we have to be perfectly obedient to the law. That means not break even one law. And not one has not broken one law. So there we have failed. And the second thing is, who will pay the perfect price for our sins? So both these things have been satisfied only in Jesus. Romans 5.19 says, by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. And that one is Jesus. Only Jesus 
had a perfect obedience to his father. And through his obedience, we have got our righteousness, not because of our goodness, but because of the grace of God. And Romans 5.10 says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. There is no other way to come into the presence of God than through Christ alone. So this was the priestly function of Jesus. Jesus obeyed God the Father and he paid the sacrifice. If you look back again into the Old Testament, the priests were the ones who, the people got the, the, the animal to be sacrificed to the priest, but the priest was the one who sacrificed that animal on behalf of the, of the sinner, or of the people. So, in contrast to the prophet, the prophet works from above to below, brings God's message and delivers it to the people when they are resistant to God's word. The priest, on the other hand, works from below upwards. Amazing, isn't it? The priest works on the behalf of the people. He is uh, an interceder. He is a mediator. And Christ did this function as well. If you look back and into the life of Moses, Moses was called to be a leader to the people of Israel but also he interceded on their behalf. You know, many a time, the, the people of Israel vexed God's heart. And Moses said, interceded on behalf of the people and said, Lord, if you are going to destroy these people, what will happen to your name? And God honored Moses' intercession. That's how the priestly office works, from below upwards, trying to bridge the gap, trying to intercede on behalf of the people. Now we look at the third office, which is the theme for this month, Christ the King. Um, in Acts uh, 2.36, this is uh, Luke writing to Theophilus, probably in, in defense of Paul. Uh, he introduces Jesus Christ, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God had, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Paul, uh, Paul is, uh, Luke is clearly writing about Jesus, saying Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is Christ, which means he is king. And in Philippians 2, eight, verses 8 to 11, again he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, highly exalted Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. This is the, the other aspect that, uh, which tells us that Christ is our King. So if you look at the functions of the King, imagine um, a King's court, an ancient, I can easily imagine because all our history the history of India is riddled with kings and so many kingdoms. It's very easy to imagine a king sitting on his throne and all his council on either side and people coming in here and submitting their petitions before the king and saying, king, this is my problem, please solve this. And, and the king says, okay, what, asks, what, what's the problem? And he says, this guy says, somebody is troubling me, this is the issue. So if you notice here, the king is seated on the throne. He is sovereign. He has all authority on his subjects. And if the king is upset, he can just order for an execution of a person. If the king is 
is impressed with the person, he can order for immediate uh, gifts to be given to that person with whom the king is impressed. But here, the, uh, the functions of both the prophet and priest are executed in the king. The king listens to the people. So the king is way above on the throne and the people are way below, but he listens to the people. All right, so this is the function of the priest. The king tells the people, listen, this is what you have done. This, you should change your ways and do this. This is right for you. That's the function of a prophet. So what we discussed earlier, from above to below, the work of the prophet, from below upwards, the work of the priest is actually accomplished in the king when the king is righteous, when the king is willing to listen. And no other king is more righteous than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? So we find that in Jesus Christ, when he is our king, he actually meets all the other requirements that are, that are necessary for you. You don't have to go to anybody else. Now, there's a little difference between an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world. In John 18, verses 33 to, to 38, that's what, when he's standing in front of Pilate, that's what he's saying. Generally, in an earthly kingdom, whether you like it or not, that king is your king. Whichever king, in whose kingdom you are, is your king, whether you like it or not. If you express any disgruntlement against the king, you could be put to death. And the king has all authority on you, whether you like it or not. Now, Jesus is a gentleman. Even though he is king, he is lord of lords and king of kings, he is a gentleman. That's because when, he, when God created Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he gave Adam the authority to rule the earth. And then God gave Adam the free will because love and free will go hand in hand. If I love somebody and if somebody else is forcing me to do something for that person, then that's not love. Unless I'm doing something out of my complete free will to somebody, then only perfect love is is made complete. You understand what I'm saying? So if somebody is forcing me to love somebody else, then there's, that's not love because it's not out of free will that I'm loving that person. So God, to make his love perfect, he also gave us free will. That's why many people ask, oh, if God is king and God is in control of the world, why did he allow Eve to eat that apple? Why did he allow um, sin to come into this world? God doesn't didn't plan for sin to, sin to enter this world. For to make his perfect love perfect and complete, he gave us free will because without free will, there's no perfection in, the, in perfect love. And that's what happened. So Adam and Eve lost it in the Garden of Eden. We cannot point fingers at them and say, see, why did you lose it? Now we are suffering. Now we have to uh, bear the brunt of what wrong you have done. If any one of us there was there, I'm sure we would have blown it much sooner than Adam and Eve have done. So uh, that's another topic we won't uh, deviate. But that eternal life that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden was stolen by the, by the evil one, by Satan. Okay, so once that happened, now Christ 
expects us out of free will to come back to him. Because if there's any force, we don't have perfect love. So if there's no perfect love, there's no point in uh, saying, God, we love you because we are being forced. That is why when we go into the presence of God, only when we accept his kingship over us, only when we accept his lordship over us, then that king will have significance in our lives. Then that king will work in our lives. All right? So that's the difference between an earthly king and a heavenly king. Our heavenly king is a gentleman. He doesn't push. He is waiting for you and me to come into his presence and say, Lord, I accept your kingship. I accept you as my Lord. And then God will be your king. When you do his work, he will do your work. How amazing it is. Now, this time of freedom has been given to us only for a limited period of time. As I said, God doesn't force himself upon us. He allows us to do based on our free will. And this has been given, this time of freedom has been given to us for a short period of time. Because, you know, in Revelation, in the chapter 5, when the, the final judgment is slowly about to be opened up step by step, then a time will come when he is king of kings and lord of lords and nobody will be able to stand in front of him, in front of his holy anger. And in Philippians, as it says, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. That's the time when, when we see Christ as Lord, when we see Christ as king, every knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If you, by your own free will, went, got into his side, got into his kingdom, then you will proclaim the very same thing and say, wow, Lord, I am in your awesome presence. What an awesome God you are. I am so glad that you saved me. And the others who have refused to accept his lordship, others who have refused to ac accept his kingship, will also say the same thing, saying, you know, oh my goodness, you are king and you are lord, what do we do? But then they have a total different destiny. But whatever it is, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess when that time comes, uh, the time for great judgment. All right. So now when, let's get back to baby Jesus. When Jesus was born, there were three wise men. We know this story very well. There were three wise men who came to visit Jesus. And the gifts they gave Jesus were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All right? And gold signifies royalty. Gold is a gift fit for a king. Frankincense is that incense which priests used to, you know, put on the coals and then very sweet-smelling fumes, very sweet-smelling aroma would rise up into the air. And that is the, the significance of the priesthood of Jesus. That's the significance of the, the uh, our Lord being our intercessor, our priest. So gold signifies royalty. Christ is our king. And that's what we are talking about today. Frankincense signifies the priestly side of Jesus, the, uh, Jesus as the intercessor, Jesus who pays the sacrifice on our behalf. And the third thing is myrrh. Myrrh is, a, is an antiseptic oil kind of a thing. And myrrh is used in two situations when it comes to, um, say, human beings. 
In a newborn baby, myrrh is applied around the umbilical stump. The umbilical stump with which you're connected to your mom and that's severed as soon as you're born. And that should dry up and fall off within seven days. If it doesn't dry up and fall off within seven days, it means there's an infection and that will cause problems to the liver in the, in the future life. Whatever said and done, myrrh is an antiseptic and it used to be applied to the umbilical cord, all right? But by the, we know very well but that by the time the wise men visited Jesus, Jesus was probably standing and walking around. He would have probably been a year to an uh, 18 month old child walking around probably. So there was no role for myrrh to apply, to be applied around the umbilical cord stump. And the other thing myrrh is used for, is for embalming. It's a, used as a preservative and as, a, as an embalming, um, embalming agent. And that signifies the death of Jesus on a cross. That signifies the sacrifice, signifies the body of Jesus that is supposed to be embalmed. And so much of message was packed into these three small gifts that the wise men uh, gave baby Jesus. And definitely Mary had kept all these things in her heart and pondered because this very baby who was born through her womb would one day become her savior, her Lord, her master, and her king. How amazing it is. Now, a little bit about a prophet or a priest. The prophets were always alone. You know, when the world was in sin, God picked out one man who was the only man who was look, uh, looking up to God and wanting to have a relationship with God. Prophets are always alone. Nobody follows them. Of course, there are a few exceptions. John had followers. But prophets always worked solo because one prophet with one mighty God, they could accomplish great things, which not anyone else in the world put together could do. If you look at Elijah, Elijah was always alone and God used him mightily. And when he went to Ahab and told him about the, about, you know, the, um, the famine in the land and about the rain to come and whenever he had an encounter with Ahab, Ahab would say, what are you, what do you have with me this time, you troublemaker? Ahab is accusing Elijah that he is the troublemaker. The, the actual thing is the opposite. Ahab was the problem. The people were the problem. They were not having any relationship with God. So prophets were always alone. Priests, priests would go ahead because they were supposed to maintain a holy life and all the people will follow the priest. Nobody will go ahead of the priest. And the priest had to go into the Holy of Holies. He went alone and the people will just be waiting for the priest. But what about the king? Only a king has got people, a king, a president, has got a convoy going ahead of him, announcing and heralding the arrival of a king. And this is what exactly happened in Jesus' life. When Jesus was doing his ministry, many people followed him. Many people wanted to look at him. And many people wanted to see his, his, uh, the miracles. But finally, when Jesus walked into Jerusalem on a donkey, people realized, okay, this man can do miracles. He probably can um, redeem us from the troubles we are facing from the Roman government. And okay, he's not coming on the horse, but at least he's riding on the donkey and he is taking his rightful place as king in our lives. So let's 
This is the only time when they run ahead of him. That's the convoy that they are all setting up. They cut branches and put cloth and pave the streets with all these amazing things. What I'm uh, uh, getting at is the arrival of Jesus was, has been heralded from the Garden of Eden. Only a king's arrival will be proclaimed much before he comes. That's what I'm, I'm getting at. The king's arrival will be announced, will be proclaimed. All right. Since we are all believers, we, we know and we believe that Christ is the king. In uh, Luke 14, verse 31, Jesus is uh, talking about the cost of being a disciple. And then in that uh, paragraph, he talks a small thing about a king. Which king, before going to battle, will not count the cost and strategize? What I'm going to talk in the next few minutes is the, the life of Jesus and the, the things that Jesus accomplished for us and the way in which he handled sin and the way in which he defeated death did not happen just like a random thing happening. God is the most intelligent being. He gave us the little bit of intelligence that we boast that we have. And the... I am going to make a sort of a scientific presentation as to how Jesus conquered our enemy and established himself as king in our lives. All right? And now, the problem between God and us is sin. Everyone knows that. Because sin came into this world and created a great divide between us and a holy God. We became impure. We became imperfect while God is perfect. And all sin can be classified into three categories. This is the teaching of my mother-in-law. Are you all surprised? I listened to my mother-in-law. Yeah. And this is written in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. So any sin in this world can be classified under these three headings. All right. So let's see how Christ the King conquered all these things. All these things that we could not conquer, let's see how Christ the King strategically conquered and gave us the, the privilege to share his victory. Okay, first, the print is a little small, but this is the first mention of uh, death in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the Lord God telling Adam that if you eat of this particular tree which you're not supposed to, then death will be your wage. Remember, Satan does not say, you guys will die. It is the, because the wages of sin is death. Who is, 
who is worthy of giving wages? It's only the judge. And who is the only worthy judge? It's God. All right? And it's not that death is in God's hands that he can give you a death, death as a wage. It's just that the absence of God itself is death. The presence of God is life. When God withdraws himself away from you, it is death. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus, uh, God, the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, only they are the judges, and they, they decide who gets what. So God is telling Adam, if you eat of that fruit, if you disobey, you will die. Remember that. Then, next slide. So in the temptation and fall, there are three stages. As I complete uh, this the whole message is on this slide. So as I complete it, you will understand why I have put it in this format. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say? Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Questioning God comes under pride of life. You're questioning God. That comes under, I told you, all sins comes on, come under three categories. You can just go home and work out everything. This is the first thing. The pride of life came in the way. And next one, stage 1B, is again the pride of life. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is the other thing. So Eve suddenly was taken aback, and this is the, the area of pride in life that again got probably the better of her. And the highlight there is that you will be like God. You know, the, the, the best advertisements are those which give the user the feeling of that they are God. Say, for example, I have got nothing against Samsung phones. I'm just using the advertisement of a Samsung, whatever, uh, the uh, iPad or that Galaxy, whatever. The, in, the advertisement of that phone says the moment you hold it, you are not there. You just go wherever you want to. One, at one moment, you are on the top of a building. At another moment, you are flying. And everything is happening at, at light speed. And that's the feeling of God that people want. And every advertisement has got these things. It's supposed to, be, it's, it's supposed to make you like God means it has got a high impact factor as far as that advertisement goes. So all the advertisers got their ideas from, these, from the fall. If you look at it carefully, you will see that most of them follow these principles. All right, let's go to stage two of the fall. So, Genesis 3, 6. Sorry. Yeah, Genesis 3, 6. The per first part of that verse says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. So the woman saw that the food was good. And that's the, the lust of the eye. That's stage two of the fall. So she, she saw that the tree was good for food. Then stage three is the lust of flesh. Genesis 3, same verse, the second part of that verse, 3, 6. 
she took so she saw that the tree was good to the eye and so she uh, took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband so this is the lust of the flesh to want to try and experience what you have seen is the lust of the flesh so that's where she fell so if you notice god said if you disobey me you shall surely die eve questioned the goodness of god questioned the authority of god questioned very god himself and then wanted to experience something which god said don't even don't have it and then she had it and that was the moment she ate that was the fall adam and eve realized that they have committed sin and that they fear entered their lives and they had to hide themselves from god all right so let's see how christ conquered and revert reverted reversed the whole thing victory over temptation it's just the bottom most one yeah so if fall came from above i mean in the sense uh, as we go went down this slide christ conquered from below here as he was a man now in luke chapter 1 uh, 4 verses 1 to 4 jesus was full of the holy spirit and returned to jordan and was led by the spirit to the wilderness <clears throat> for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days <coughs> excuse me and when they were ended he was hungry so jesus was in the wilderness he was fasting and praying we don't know how many temptations he had but there are only these that have been mentioned so the first temptation that jesus is faced with which is posed to him by the devil is if you are the son of god command this stone to become bread and jesus said man shall not live by bread alone you saw that the last thing where eve fell by eating the bread bread was the first thing where jesus conquered and he said man shall not live by bread alone you have an enemy who's broken your outer wall and then he's broken the second wall and then he's broken the third wall and he's with you and you and you see the enemy and you're wondering how will i face this enemy christ enters the scene and he says i will first kick the enemy beyond the last wall he has conquered to that point so that's what jesus christ did he kicked the enemy to the last wall he has conquered so christ conquers temptation by reverting the very thing that went wrong in the beginning by saying man shall not live by bread alone oh it's 11:15 already all right let's move on quickly next next slide then the second temptation that jesus overcame is in luke uh, 4 verse uh, verse 5 and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him this is the area where devil showed the creator the earth and everything that is in it belongs to god and how can devil just i mean i don't know he thought he's so clever he's showing jesus what belongs to him so that's the area when the woman saw in the same area in life the devil took jesus up and showed him and said to jesus again go to the next slide go up 
And then it, the devil also takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, he will, you can jump from here and he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, let, lest your, you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I jumped one thing, I think. Yeah. But uh, you shall not put the Lord God to your test. And that's the first area in life where Eve fell because Eve questioned the goodness of God. And uh, Jesus is telling the devil, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Now go up one more. And the last one is, Jesus conquered all temptations because he is seated at the right hand of the Father as uh, Stephen sees, even before he's going to be killed. Stephen says, I can see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is seated there and he is going to be the judge. It's not God the Father, it's not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to be the judge. And as uh, in Revelation chapter 5, as John sees and, and everyone is stressed out there, looks like, to see who is worthy of opening those scrolls of judgment, they find the lion of the tribe of Judah, who also looks like the lamb, as though he were slain. That's none other, none other than Jesus Christ, who is the only one who is worthy of opening the scrolls. The scrolls contain judgment. Jesus is going to judge us. And how is he going to judge us? When, you, when human beings are quite intelligent, you see, we are so smart. We stand before God and say, <clears throat> Lord, how can you judge me? Um, you've not seen any poverty. You've not seen any temptation. Nobody can say that. Because when the Lord pronounces judgment, he has gone through things which are worse than what any human being could have gone through. And that is what gives him the authority to judge us. Hallelujah. So the last thing after conquering all these temptations that Jesus did was he conquered death itself. In Luke chapter 24, <clears throat> when the women go to see a search for Jesus, Jesus' body, they find a stone rolled away and the angels tell, uh, uh, the angels ask um, these women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Jesus is risen, and he conquered death. So the same order in which God, it, it, things, uh, things were uh, messed up in the Garden of Eden, Jesus, the King, conquered those very things. He kicked defeat one step by one step and kicked defeat out, way out, to the point where he even kicked death out from this universe. And all these are our victories. All these are our victories if we accept the kingship of Jesus. Because, as I said, there's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the human beings. In the earthly kingdom, you may not believe in your prime minister, but if he passes a law or a rule and it's beneficial to the people, you may still... Um, throw mud at your prime minister, but you will still enjoy the benefits. It's not like that with the kingdom of God. If you accept the king as your king, you are in his kingdom, you will have to carry your cross and follow him because that's part of God's kingdom, but you will also ultimately have the gifts and the benefits of the kingdom of God.
Hallelujah. So let us, uh, let us look at Christ in this season, especially when everyone is looking at him as a commodity with which we can have parties and celebrate. Yes, we have to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but let us look at him as a king. Let us look at him individually as a king in our lives because Christ is king for each individual. If your wife or a husband uh, believes that he is his or her, uh, her or his king, then it does not uh, work for the other spouse. So now let's look at, uh, there are other things, but I'll cut the sermon short. We are at 11.20. Now, why I put that uh, picture of that gentleman is, uh, this is in Gudur. I was in Gudur in Andhra Pradesh. Last Sunday, I was there in India. And this is the same place where uh, Ben had visited with Joshua last, uh, last year. I met this man. I was very touched by his, uh, um, by his testimony. And that's why I put it up, because it uh, reinforces the fact of the kingship of Jesus. This guy is Vidyadar, and apparently he, he was born in a nominal Christian family. He heard about Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. He knows all the provision that Jesus has made for each one of us. But he was a, a, a thug. He was a, a thug, a goon, a, an extortionist. So wherever there were fights in, 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 in and around that village, he would go and... Um, established his superiority he would beat up people and things like that to an extent that all the politicians identified him and they started using him for extortion so they would <clears throat> say we'll pay you this much you go and do this rogue job for us so he was doing that and then along with that comes drinking and all the other excessive drinking and other vice in life so he started drinking quite a lot and he developed a huge tummy which people with liver failure develop yeah, he was like that, and, but still he was in, into extortion. One day, he, he started falling ill, and then one day he suddenly passed out. Basically, as you, you will come to know later, that he was actually dead. He passed out. And then he found himself being pulled out of his body, and he saw, saw his body lying there every one morning, and they all knew that he was dead, but he was pulled out, and then two people came and dragged him into a place where he saw it was a huge uh, pit or a cauldron, huge cauldron kind of a pit where he saw that there was something like molten lava being just, you know, being churned up. And as the lava was being churned up, he saw human beings' heads sort of really frantically bob out of that lava <clears throat> and take a gasp of air and then go back again because there are other hands which try and push those heads down and they're also trying to put their head up and trying to breathe. And this guy, because he's already heard gospel, he has heard about Jesus, he knows about heaven and hell, he suddenly said, where am I? Please don't be put there. I, I, I don't want to go there. And then a man dressed in white comes to him and he says, uh, he, he comes to him and this man tells that man dressed in white, obviously he knows he is Jesus. Jesus, I deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. But give me another chance. 
Each one of us deserves to be there because more responsibility has been placed upon us because we know God. So what happened was the man in white grabbed him and pulled him out from there and pushed him back into where his body lay. And then he, he became, again, what do you say? Unseparated. <laughs> the opposite of separate. He became one into his body and then he got up and everyone was crying around him. And then they were all so happy because this guy was supposed to be dead, became a changed man. And then his liver problem that he had was also cured. Because when Jesus restores, he doesn't just restore one part of your body, one, one part of your life. There is a complete transformation in your life. Amen? And I met him and his sons this last Sunday. And they are so much in the Lord. The sons are, they've seen the radical transformation that their father has, has experienced. And they've seen the different man that he is. And they, they are the ones believe, who believe that God can actually change people. Amazing. So they're, they're doing a lot of ministry in the same place they, they sing and they minister. This guy works a small job uh, as a tent maker business, but he is into ministry. He is so shameless of the gospel. I was ashamed of myself because whenever, if I have to tell somebody something, I will always think about it three or four times. And, but this guy is so shameless because he has been forgiven a lot. He is thankful a lot. And he's so enthusiastic. He shares Jesus with everybody. And I was touched by him. And this is what happened um, when I met him last week. And I thought, Christ the King, on theory, I mean, it's very nice to hear about Christ the King. But when you see him work miracles in, in, in practice, and when you see people's lives transformed, it's amazing. And that same transformation is there for us. I'm not saying we are into a, into a sinful life and all that, but everyone has come short of the glory of God unless we are constantly being refined by the fire, which is the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's a greater risk of us who know him saying, Lord, Lord, we do, did this in your name. I preached a message there. And Lord says, I don't know you. But there are others who go to him and ask, when did I do that? When did I do this? And God says, that time you did this, you did for me. So people who actually don't know may be more eligible to go to heaven than the people who actually know God. So this message is for the people in church. We have to pull up our socks, and mainly for me, actually, not for even for you. I'm just talking to myself, and you are overhearing. So we have to pull up our socks, tighten our belts, and do something about it. Spend time in the presence of God. Ask Him to, uh, ask Him to help us to submit to Him, because all good things come from Him. But we have to put our foot first. If we put our foot first, Jesus is able to reach out His hand and pull us out from wherever we are. May the Lord bless his word. Thank you.